Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, forgive me, my father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He has lost, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you have never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Lord, we thank you for this amazing parable. We thank you for the time we've been able to consider it through this month. And as we look at it again now, we pray that you would take us deeper into the truth that we find in you. Lord, everything changes when we understand who you really are and then who we are in you. And I pray for each of my friends listening now, for all those catching up online, that through this, they would be rooted even more firmly in the truth of who they are in you and of the God who loves them wildly. Work amongst us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I had a... uh, car accident a few weeks ago, someone plowed into me at a roundabout, and one of the consequences of that is that I've spent far more time than I would have liked to recently on hold, uh, trying to get through to insurance companies and other people involved, and anyone knows hold music isn't normally particularly pleasant, is it? Uh, These sort of 
disdainful tunes or slightly dystopian melodies or pop songs that someone's played badly uh, because they don't want to obviously pay for the full rights of the song. And the company that I chose to work with, obviously I won't shame them here, but they, they had a particularly bad repertoire, I think, of hold music. And I've heard a lot of it, don't you worry. But then, uh, 20 minutes into one hold period a few weeks ago, uh, they were. it was a particularly... Um, interesting form of top 40 turned to slow piano music. Um, and then out of nowhere, the same style, but a different song came on. And I thought, hang on a minute, I know that song. And the tune they were playing was Amazing Grace. Out of nowhere, on the line of an insurance company, Amazing Grace, this amazing hymn written 250 years ago, just celebrated an anniversary in a town in Buckinghamshire. The writer was Reverend John Newton, former slave trader, who was about to go into shipwreck. It didn't look good, and he cried out to a God that he didn't know and said, if you save me, I'll serve you for the rest of my life, and just about managed to get out of that wreckage and came good on his promise. John Newton gave everything then to serving God, became ordained. It took a long time to get it through his training, but then went to work in parishes. And alongside preaching, would write hymns to help people learn the messages. And one day wrote Amazing Grace to accompany a sermon that he was giving. It's then been sung around the world hundreds of thousands of millions of times. It's been put to different forms of music and different people have sung it. And it even ended up on the other line of a hold period when I was waiting for some car insurance info. I say that because one of those central lines draws on that very final verse that we've read. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Today we're going to look through this parable again, exclusively through the eyes of the Father. So let's begin by tracking through all the events that we've heard about already, but thinking about the Father's involvement and his perspective So the younger son comes to him having been raised in his home, having enjoyed the benefit of everything the father had worked for and says, I want my inheritance now. I want what's due to me in a sense at your death, but I want to fast forward it and I kind of want it now. The father graciously accepts this request and I think we've got to recognize that in the first hearing of this, that would have been scandalous in itself. Why on earth would a father say yes to that request? I wish you were dead so that I could have your stuff. I care about your possessions more than I care about your relationship. And yet the father says, okay, here's what you would be due. Off you go. Use the freedom that I've given you. This would have enraged the first audience. And there's a few points in what I'm going to say where we need to remember that this isn't a nice, sanitized, sentimental kind of a story. This is outrageous. The pain for the father is that the son wants his stuff more than he wants his heart, you might say. He wants the things that he can give without the relationship of the father because quickly he goes off, goes a long way away into immoral living, even though the father wouldn't know what that would be because he didn't get in touch The interesting thing for me is that the younger son always knew that this man was still his father. When he was considering what he was going to do in the pigsties far away, he said, I could return to my father and say, make me one of your hired servants. 
even after everything that had happened, and maybe because of the way he was treated, when he basically wished his father dead, there wasn't a moment where he questioned who he was to that man. He knew, even in spite of all his wrongdoing, that this man was his father. So he dreams up this plan and eventually returns. And throughout that time, even though he was a long way away, even though he didn't know whether the son was ever going to return, whether he was going to end up in a ditch somewhere, whether he was going to come back one day or other, the father kept on looking out for the son. And as it says, while he was a long way off, the father saw him. Now that means to me that the father was looking regularly, searching the horizon to see, is there going to be that familiar little silhouette that I can pinpoint as my son? Imagine going out day after day, looking on the horizon again and seeing nothing, and yet still turning up the next day, and still turning up the next day, until that familiar frame, that familiar silhouette bursts onto the horizon, and the father knows exactly who it is, because he loves that son so dearly. The father had missed every moment that his younger son hadn't been there, missed all the friendship that they'd had, missed his presence, and so he ran. Now, important again to note that at this time that no respectable man was ever found running. Maybe there's some men here who would like that still to be the case. No respectable man ran in this time. Children might run when they're playing. Women might run. But respectable men did not run in this time. Because running meant hiking up your long tunic, exposing your ankles and your shins and maybe your knees so that you could run and not trip. And that was something that no man did in this time. Some people have depicted this parable more as the running father than the prodigal son. And there's a picture uh, that's going to come on the screen of a, an artistic depiction or two of this running father. On the right, you'll see it says this is the story of the prodigal son. It should really be called the running father. And Charlie Mackesy, who you might know from the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse, or however I've misordered that, has depicted this in bronze uh, and then on canvas on the right. And throughout the talk, I'm just going to leave that there. If you need somewhere to daydream, that's a good place to go. Knowing that that's how the father comes to you. Anyway, so the father ran, pushing aside all respectability, hiking up his tunic so that people could see his bare legs. The father had already had shame heaped upon him when his, his son had left. His neighbors and his friends would have been sniggering and mocking, saying, oh, he can't even keep his family together. His son basically wishes he's dead. And now they see him running past, bare legs on show. This guy is heaping shame on himself, doing all the things that everyone else says are not just done. But that's what he was willing to do. Why did he run? Maybe that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Why did he run? Well, of course, in one sense, he ran so that he got to his son quickly. Looking out on the horizon, he obviously wants to see him. And so he runs to get there first. So this is a compassionate thing. But remember also, this is a deeply protective thing that he's doing as well. What would have happened in that day if another member of that community had got to the sun first is a thing called a Kezazar ceremony. 
So if a uh, Jewish person had been disgraced, they'd left their family, their community, they'd gone off into dissolute, wild living, and then they tried to return, when they reached the gates of the city or the gates of their town, an elder member of that community would approach them, a group of elder men. It wouldn't be their family because they'd already received enough shame. Other people would do it on their behalf. And they would go to the gates of the city and they would get a giant clay pot used for transporting water or bathing or cooking, that kind of a thing. They'd get this huge pot and they'd stop the disgraced person where they were. And then they'd put some um, things inside the pot which would cause it to burn and to break. And essentially they would shatter this pot in front of the person who'd returned. And then they would declare to them... You are cut off from your people. They're basically saying, our relationship with you is broken irrevocably. It's broken beyond repair like this pot is. You have no part in your family, no part in this town, no part in your religion. Be gone, you're dead to us. That's the fate that was due the younger son. And he probably knew that full well. He might have seen a Kezazar once or twice. So what the father's doing is getting there in front of the crowd, getting there to be the one that meets the son at the city gate so that no pot is getting smashed today. No kazazar is happening today. He's not dead to me. I am alive to him and I will take him back into my family. The father running, yes, is deeply compassionate. Yes, it's to embrace him like these pictures, but it's also to protect him. Because if anyone else had got there first, a kazazar would have happened. A pot would have been smashed and the relationship would have been broken forever. The father said, no kazazar today. He accepts his son back and the community could then not reject him. In accepting him, he cuts short this rehearsed speech. I don't care what you can do for me, son. I don't want you as a slave. You're my son. I don't need you to come and work back the money that you've spent. Here's a robe and a ring, a signet ring, if you like, family identity. You're part of us still. Others would want to cut you off, but not me. Here's a signet ring instead of a broken pot. Here's your identity confirmed and your place reinstated. You don't have to earn it. You just accept it as a free gift. And now that you're mine again, now that you're alive, though I thought you were dead, let's celebrate. So the party begins, the music gets loud, the calf is killed, and everyone comes to celebrate, except for one person. The elder son hears a commotion, hears that something's going on and says, what's going on? Why is there a party out of nowhere? I don't know anything about this. And the other son's not there, so finds out what it is that's going on. Your son, your brother has returned, rather. But he wants no part in it. And so, again, remember again, the father goes out to the elder son. He's already looked for the younger son on the distance, and now he goes out to the elder son working in the fields of their land. And that might not seem like a very big distance, okay? He's gone a long way, hasn't he, to the edge of the town. But the distance really is just as big because what it shows is that this son of mine never really knew me. 
He never really knew what I was about. He never knew my heart to bless. So again, the father goes out to this elder son. He leaves the party and think party, think revelation, heavenly banquet. He leaves heaven. The celebration he's been longing for, the best day of his life, some have described it as. He rides out the embarrassment again of people saying, crumbs, you've thrown this party for one son and now the other one doesn't want anything to do with it. Your family is falling apart. He rides out that embarrassment and pleads with the elder son. Notice here that the elder son can't even call his father, father. He can't even call his brother, brother. He says, this son of yours, I want nothing to do with this. You're not my people, you're not my family. He's incensed that the fattened calf had been killed. Now in this time, meat was an expensive delicacy. It wasn't a regularly eaten thing, but atop of the meat list even was a fattened calf. This is the thing you would bring out for the special family occasion, the wedding, the huge anniversary. Meat wasn't something you had every day. And how come this son of yours, who's wasted your inheritance, gets the fattened calf? I've had my eyes on that for ages. And you've never even given me a little goat, something small by comparison to celebrate with my friends. The elder son here shows that he cares again more about his father's things than he does about his father's heart. He cares more about the celebration and the status and the inheritance than he does about knowing this person who is his dad. He cares about earning the favor, the benefits of the father through always doing the right thing, toiling away in the fields, putting in another day's hard labor to build up his own sense of righteousness, right? I deserve this, Father. Well, no, everything's a gift and you don't deserve anything. Because sin has warped our mind and our motives, The scandalous thing that we learn here is that we even need saving from doing the right thing. It's easy for us to see, isn't it? The younger son needed saving because he did the wrong stuff. He was bad. But what we see with the elder son is that we even need saving from doing the right thing. Stick with me on this. Because right from the wrong motive to gain favor, to curry favor with dad, not to accept a free gift, but to think that we owe it or deserve it, right from the wrong motive becomes wrong. Right when done out of a cold heart with no relationship, no friendship becomes wrong. Right to believe that nothing bad should ever happen to us because we've put in enough days of good favor, haven't we, God, becomes wrong. The elder son was determined to be right on his own terms, to do everything he possibly could so that no one could come against him with any charge. And he ended up in just as lost a place as his younger brother, even though he couldn't see it that way. And despite all of that, how does the father respond? Seeing the condition of the elder son's heart, but he responds with compassion and with tenderness. My son, he says, Despite the fact that his son can't call him father, he never wavers to call him just a man, a junior. He's always still a son. I want you to come in and be part of the feast. There's a place set for you. There's a portion of the fattened calf with your name on it. Come inside and celebrate. You have been with me always. 
The greatest prize of all is my presence, is closeness with me. He was dead, but is now alive. Of course, we had to celebrate. And there, bizarrely, scandalously, the parable ends with no sense of resolution, no sense of how the elder brother responded. I hope beyond hope that he went into the party swallowed his pride and realized his wrong and was reinstated. But we don't know whether he stayed outside and toiled. We don't know whether he ran away and said, I want no part of this grace thing. There are depths to be plumbed with this father, our God. There's a lifetime of treasure in this parable alone, but for this moment, in this talk, for this group of people at this time, let me just highlight three things for us. The first is that there is salvation for all. The father shows us with the younger son that whatever you've done, however bad, the father looks out for you and runs towards you, embraces you and draws you back in out of his pure grace. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for me and for you and for prodigals that will hopefully soon come home. Jesus is looking out on the horizon. He's scanning Berry and seeing who's looking over their shoulder towards a God that they're sort of interested in. Who's wandered away from church, but actually in their heart wants to come home. He's scanning the horizon and he's praying that they would come home. He's ready to embrace anyone who turns to him. And in the first instance, that was the tax collectors and the sinners who gathered around to hear this story, who flocked to Jesus. And it seems like from the accounts of who was around Jesus during his time on earth, that these people accepted this message readily. On the other side, the father shows us with the elder son that whatever you've done, however good, the father comes out to you. He longs to draw you in fully, again, out of his pure grace. To elder brothers, the father wants to say, you are a co-heir with Christ. You are part of this inheritance, and it's all a gift. I love what you've done for me, but more than that, I love you. I don't really need that much help with the stuff I want to make happen, because I'm God. I just really wanted to be your friend. God's been with you always and being near to him, being friends with him, is the greatest gift of all. God comes out to elder brothers and invites you into relationship, out of dutiful service with a cold heart to try and curry favour. The Father comes and invites you into relationship with him. And in the first hearing, this related most to the teachers of the law who muttered around Jesus. Hang on a minute, he gathers with these sinners and we think that's repulsive. And we don't know what their response to hearing this parable was. It's scary to read in other places in the Gospels. Jesus tells them plainly what's happening. Matthew 21, for instance, at the end of a short parable, Jesus says to chief priests and elders, the same kind of group of people, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Jesus in this parable is turning everything round. 
where everyone thinks it's the good people, the moral people that get in first. And a few tax collectors and sinners might scrape in if they brush up their act at the last minute. Jesus is saying, it looks to me like the tax collectors and sinners are accepting this gift of grace ahead of the people who should know best, who teach about me, who are elders in my church. They're getting into the kingdom ahead of you. There's a man in the States called Rob Radosky, and he puts it like this. The elder son, if you like, with this wrongly moralistic outlook, his approach is a bit like saying, I messed up and my dad's going to kill me. Whereas the younger son, knowing that he's done wrong but is still a son, his approach is a bit more like, I messed up, I need to call dad. Jesus invites us to know him, to turn to him. And wherever we're coming from, whether we're more a younger brother or an elder brother, whether we've had times of both, whether we see both in us regularly, the gospel goes out to you and there's salvation for all. The key is to embrace it, to build your life on it and to be changed by its message. First thing then, salvation for all. Second thing to point out is about embracing shame. In this parable, we see again and again how the father was willing to take on himself the shame that was due to other people, the shame that was mainly intended for his wayward sons. He then became implicated by their behavior. The bad light wasn't all cast on them. He kind of stood in it, almost to deflect some of it away from them. The father embraced the shame that others were due throughout this parable. And that leads us, of course, to remember Jesus, who did exactly the same when he gave himself up to death on a cross. To die on a cross was the lowest form of death, reserved for the worst kinds of criminals. To be hung on a tree was to be cursed. Jesus died naked, flogged, put on display in the middle of the city to make a spectacle out of him. to to try and quash the people that were following him. In doing so, Jesus took all the shame, stood in the way of it to deflect it, if you like, to cast a shadow behind himself into which we can stand. The father was willing to accept the shame that was due for his wayward sons and Jesus was willing to accept the shame for you and for me and for all who will call on his name. Tim Keller says that what both groups, what both sons need is to be melted and moved by what it cost to bring us home. Melted and moved by what it cost to bring us home. Jesus went to the cross because he had to make it possible for me and for you and for everyone who will call on his name to come home. He endured the beatings and the slander, the mocking crown of thorns, each excruciating breath, with you and the ability to bring you home in mind. Whoever and however you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus rose through the tomb for you. Let that melt and move you and let your life then be a humble thank you in response.
First thing, the salvation for all. Second thing, the father was willing to embrace their shame and willing to embrace yours. Third and final thing, the question is in the air, who should have gone out to find the younger son? In this chapter, Luke 15, there's three parables about lostness, as we've heard through these weeks. In both earlier cases, the lost sheep and the lost coin, someone went out to find the thing that was lost. But in this third parable, no one goes out to find this lost wayward son. The father kept a watch for him, but he didn't go into the foreign lands to find out where he was. He watched for him when he came home and he ran towards him in grace and protection. But he didn't go and find him. And everyone at that time would have been thinking, well, yeah, there's one person who was supposed to go and find him. And guess who it was? The elder son. The elder son, in being the eldest, one of their responsibilities was to keep the family together so that there was a unit to to take on this inheritance, if you like. They would get the lion's share, and part of their responsibility was to keep the family together, to keep it intact. So if there was a wayward son or daughter, the elder son's job was to go off and find them, to put down what they were doing and say, I will search out wherever they are. I'll chase them down. I'll get them to come home so that this family can stay intact. And here, obviously, we see that the elder son doesn't go anywhere, but back out into the fields to keep working, to keep pumping up his own sense of righteousness and entitlement. We have an elder brother who came for us. Jesus Christ himself, who gave up the ring in being made in human likeness as a slave. He gave up the royal robe by being flogged and crucified naked. Jesus, the true elder brother, comes to us and says, I did it all for you. I sought you out in your lostness and I brought you home to the father that I can call father and now you can call father too. Once you know that you've been found by a true elder brother, Jesus Christ, we can be those who act like elder siblings for other people, following his example to search out wayward sons and daughters here and now. John Ortberg, pastor and author, says that one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal younger son without turning into the elder brother. One of the hardest things in the world is to stop wandering away and coming back without letting your heart become cold to those who still need to make that journey home. My urge and cry for us today is to follow the true elder brother's example, Jesus Christ, not the elder son from this parable. Because as I look out on it, upwards of 95% of people in Bury need elder sons to help them home to the father. And if we sit here dutifully working in the field, trying to earn our sense of a place at the table, we're not then searching for those on the horizon, going into the communities and workplaces in which these people live and work and spend their time. Jesus is the elder brother who came for us and invites us now to follow his example, to be the elder siblings that will hunt down wayward sons and daughters 
and invite them back to their place at the table of God. Let's take a moment to pray before we ready ourselves to receive from Jesus in bread and wine.